from our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we jump into today's topic, uh, so I, I gotta, you know, I know I've 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 had some uh, some beef with the hot toddy in the past, but I do have mm-hmm. I have a question for you. So I'm dealing with a sick wife at home. Ah. What is your opinion on drinking while you're sick? Um, yes, please. Generally, really, yeah. You know, I, I, I've always like heard that you're not supposed to, and I've written some articles about it where it'll make you sicker. You definitely shouldn't do it on antibiotics, but then sometimes yes. I'll be like, "Well, now I feel better, so like I absolutely want a glass of wine." But do you, I mean like is what do you like better, not better to help you sleep? It makes me, my sleep worse. Okay, so so let me preface this with a couple statements. If you out there are listening to this and think that I am a doctor, thank you, but you are sadly mistaken. So do not consider this <laughs> medical advice. This is purely. Uh, life experience. So what I would say is that like when I've been in my life like very sick, then no, drinking is not something that's on my mind. And obviously in the same way that like when you're for me when I'm quite sick, really consuming anything is generally pretty unappealing. And that's why you kind of end up on, you know, water and broth and those sorts of things. But for your average like eh, cold, maybe a little flu, just kind of feel shitty. I often do have a drink. And for two reasons, I guess. One is like I'm a big believer that um, – your mental state when you're sick is a big part of your recovery. And if you are just, if there's nothing to make you feel good, nothing that you enjoy, if it's just like, ugh, I feel like shit. Ugh, like when am I going to feel better? You know, that sort of like way in which time stretches out when you're sick. You know, sometimes a little, little drink helps you get through that stretch. And, you know, also helps me sleep or at least go to sleep, which depending on how what kind of sick I am sometimes can be a real issue. You know, if I'm coughing or, uh, you know, have a bad headache, sometimes, you know, that just that little release that alcohol gives uh, does help. So, yeah, you know, I'm not like I'm not saying, you know, you know, get wasted. Uh, we never say that on this podcast. But um, but the but, yeah, I will absolutely have a drink or two when I'm sick. And, and I think, you know, obviously to each their own, but it's definitely a, a pretty significant part of my, you know, at home remedy repertoire. See, I used to like have that, you know, the belief that if I took like a shot of whiskey at night right before I would go to bed, I would sleep better. Um, I thought, to be honest, like when I'm sick, I don't really like to drink uh, that much. I mean, especially not wine because I can't taste anything. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess when I am sick, I, if I were to drink at all, it'd mostly be whiskey. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I always found that it never really helped that much. You know, like I thought, oh, this is going to knock me right out. Cause isn't that what NyQuil is? NyQuil is basically, you know, a little bit of alcohol and some sleepy meds, but it never really has done it for me. But, um, you know, then of course my wife's like, oh, can you, can you come home and make me a hot toddy? So uh, <laughs> I was curious. Well, as long as you don't call her a psychopath, I think you're probably okay. Well, it's still uh, winter, Zach, here. It's, uh, it's going to be winter for another 20 years. Yeah. Uh, it's really annoying. I was looking at the forecast. I assume that's like just some part of some like broader HBO Game of Thrones promotion. They've somehow I think, yeah, they're that. like, let's just do this with it with uh, with New York. Let's just make it winter yeah, forever. Gonna- <laughs> no, but seriously, like, come on. It's like early April. It's like, it's time. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, I wanted. I wanted. I had a question for you, or a, a topic for you, which was: I hate to be too navel gazy, but we do it occasionally on this podcast. And uh, obviously, last week, you know, we talked to Eric Asimov, and uh, Eric, as you know, we both talked about during the the uh, interview, is uh, is a legend, and and uh, I think an inspiration for both of us. But you and I didn't really get a chance to talk afterwards um, about what we thought of of the conversation. And and for those of you who didn't listen to it, um, you have my permission to pause, download last week's episode, listen. And resume. We will still be here, um, but I think that there is. I just I was struck by, you know, it, it comes back to something that you talked about with his writing, in that like 
he's just an approachable dude. I mean, you were there in person with him, so maybe, you know, you had a different experience, although I suspect not. But but I just I think the thing I appreciated most was, you know, he took he he really he engaged, he was there and he he was really interested in I think the conversation we were having, which I mean, I'm interested in the conversations we have, but you don't always expect everyone else to be. I mean, it was pretty awesome. I mean, I, it was really funny. So, uh it's you probably didn't realize this cuz you're in Seattle. Um but Keith is like a really huge fan of Eric's, like huge. I mean, I've always really liked Eric Asimov. I think he's, you know, as I said on, on last week's podcast, um, I think that he's amazing. But uh, Keith like really loves Eric. And after after Eric left, Keith was like, those people who say you should never meet your heroes are totally wrong. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> he, he was just like such a nice guy. And, you know, he came out and Keith and he were talking about Chianti and, you know, Eric was asking questions to, about, to Keith about, you know, what Keith's discovered tasting Chianti because Eric's about to do a really big Chianti tasting. Um, and I just thought it was like, like he's a real dude, right? He didn't come out of the booth talking with me and you and basically like, I'm the, I'm the wine critic at the New York Times. And so therefore, whatever Vine Pairs wine critic is tasting is far inferior to what I taste. Instead, he was like, no, like Keith probably has lots of knowledge that I'd like to gain before I do my tasting. And I thought that was really awesome and really human of him. And I, I feel like that's actually really rare and that's what makes him special. And maybe not what makes him, you know, special all across the board, but that like, just that, that's the biggest problem I still find in wine is there's so many people who want to take the knowledge they have and become snobs because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like the exact opposite. And what I think is so funny is that so many of these people who are snobs really respect him. And I'm like, just take a cue from him. <laughs> right. He's such a normal person. Like he yeah. doesn't – he's not judgmental at all. We we totally know from that last podcast how he feels about, you know, a lot of these mass-produced wines. But he never once like, you know, talked down to people who enjoy drinking them. And yeah. I just think that that is what wine should be. You know, he, he really is representative of, of what wine should be. I also want to point out one thing that he said that was kind of in the middle of our conversation, so it wasn't really a, a chance to to jump in on it. But, you know, he talked about how because of the New York Times' policies about these things, you know, he doesn't get uh, sent on press junkets. You know, he doesn't get to go get taken somewhere um, on, you know, sort of these great elaborate trips. You know, anything, the, any travel he does, I assume, has to be approved by, you know, the, the Times' budget and, all, you know, his budget or whatever, or he has to yeah, pay for ethics, it out of yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, people, yeah. Yeah. And – and I thought that was really interesting to me because it does you I forget it's easy to forget in in this line of work how and I mean look, I think it's fair to say that like even you and I have have sometimes these things where like you know you you get offered to a chance to do something by a promotional group or a um you know a a, a promotional board or a, or a producer or whatever and you know we i think it's it's possible to go on those things and retain your objectivity about them you know and some of them it's easier to and some people do a better job of this than others but i really respected that in in this way it puts him much more in line with his readers where they're not getting sent all over the world to have these experiences if they want to go experience wine in a in a place that's not where they live, they have to plan it. They have to budget for it. They have to they have to make those decisions about what do I get to do and what I, what don't I. And there are definitely wine writers and some good wine writers. To be fair, I'm not trying to knock them who spend seemingly most of their year traveling from one region to well, another, from one festival to another, from one event to another, and they don't really have any connection to the how people drink wine because they're only drinking it in these sort of elite circles at these you know fancy events, and it's just. 
it doesn't mean you can't say interesting things about the wine, but it it does really remove you from your audience. Well, I think it's really interesting that you're teasing next week's episode, Zach. Uh, but you know that that <laughs> hey man, that's just good production. I know, but but this idea we'll talk about next week about how much of the wine, beer, and spirits industry really is pay to play. And I don't mean pay to play in just the, hey, I'm a brewer and I'm going to walk into the draft, you know, into the bar and and buy these draft lines, which happens and we'll talk about. But also how much of pay to play is you don't realize as a reader being dictated by a lot of these journalists who take a lot of free shit and then write about that shit is as compensation for taking the free shit, mm-hmm. whether it's five-star travel or high-end you know, restaurant experiences or whatever. We are really clear on our site with our samples policy that we never do that, that we never you know, agree to write about something because we were given something or because travel was get given or whatever. The Times is very good about that. But I think because the, the world of drinks is so – foggy in terms of is this person, you know, a beer blogger and like a an enthusiast or are they an actual journalist? And because it's so foggy across the board and because so many people are freelancers, it's hard. Well, I mean, we'll get into this next week, yeah. but <laughs> it's really hard to tell. And I, and I think it's interesting that he that he talked about that. For sure. Uh, but yeah, so, so tune in next week because that's what we're talking about, pay to play in the alcohol industry. Um, but for this week's conversation, you wanted to chat about alternative packaging. Yeah. So, you know, it, it may be the dead of winter in New York still, but here in Seattle, it's actually pretty nice out. Um, and, you know, every time uh, we get to sort of the transition from summer to – or from, sorry, from uh, winter to spring, we um, – you know, people start asking me, oh, you know, what do you think about canned wine? Or what do you think about now, you know, canned cocktails? Or or, or box wine, obviously, is a big thing. And, you know, I, I've, I've totally honestly, like, really changed how I feel about this. You know, I think there was a point in my life when I was younger and maybe a little more um, – snobby in my own way where you thought it was stupid yeah you know i think it was just kind of like uh why do people want to do this like why is everything more fun when it's in a can and why is everything more fun when it's in a box and then you know what i was like actually those people are right it is more fun it is you know it, it does allow these beverages to travel in a variety of different ways to be part of people's experiences in a way that a bottle of wine or you know um certain you know or even a bottle of beer or a or a handle of of you know liquor can't travel it can't be a part of people's day to day and i also think you know the other part of it that really prompted this revelation for me and this is a part that i was kind of curious to to get your perspective on is like also a lot of the products out there don't really need they don't deserve in some way elaborate packaging they're best when they're in something very simple i i mean okay so i agree with you i think that they're fun but I'm going to be a little bit of the devil's advocate here that it can't just – so, you know, as part of uh, being a an investor-backed company, right? So we have investors that range from people like Gary Vaynerchuk who invested in VinePair to Joanne Wilson and other people, right? Sometimes I'm asked by those people to look at new businesses that they're looking at that are in the alcohol space because they're thinking about investing and like can they get, you know, my and Josh's expertise because we, we see this all the time as journalists. Mm-hmm. It is amazing to me how many people think all they have to do is put something in a can and it will sell. <laughs> True. And the biggest thing that I think is a problem with the new alternative packaging movement is a lot of the juice is fucking garbage. Yeah. Like it's just not good juice. It's not good co- – they're not good cocktails. They're, it's not good wine. People are using alternative packaging because it is right now trendy to basically get rid of 
garbage product. And what you also see is you see lots of people that have no experience in the wine, especially the wine world, not as much in the cocktail world, but in the wine world who have business experience. And it's actually surprisingly easy to buy bulk wine. (laughs) I've, I've I've, I've, I've looked online. All you have to do is literally search like, Malbec Argentina bulk wine for sale and you will find tons of people looking to sell this wine. And as long as you can either figure out a way to get your cans down to Argentina and have them filled, sorry to pick on Argentina, or get your wine from let's even say the south of France, you know, in a huge, you know, container ship that's still like basically in a giant bag and box over to a winery in America to be bottled or sorry, canned, they will sell it to you. And it's always stuff that they can't move themselves or they didn't deem good enough for their own wines, et cetera. And it goes into this package and it's garbage. It's just not good. And so that's what I think I'm fearful of is that while alternative packaging is hot, I don't want us to do with alternative packaging what we did to box wine, which was we use the box to put lots of garbage in it. And now you have all these people who are trying to reclaim box wine. You have some really good ones like from the tank. It's a, you know, sort of sustainable, almost natural wine that is imported by Jenny and Francois. You have, um, I don't know, do you have that in, in, uh, in Seattle? I haven't seen that one, but but I'll be honest, I, I don't actually scan my grocery store. So you also have like, I think it's called Wineberry. It's like a mm-hmm. box wine that's in a wood box, which is pretty good. You have that? I, you know, I, I got to admit, most of the box wine that I see in, in the, in like stores here is either, um, you know, sort of the big stuff that comes in from like the South of France specifically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, or, um, we see a lot of, uh, producers locally, um, or not a lot of, but there are a few producers locally that produce box wine and actually some pretty good, uh, some I mean, good stuff, right? Yeah. Right, I mean, so not like, not like, you know, again, we're not stuff that you and I are going to be like, man, let's, let's like take this to the restaurant and ask them to open it for us. But like, uh, no, um, but, but, but. But the thing is, but here's the deal, like the technology of the bag in the box is actually incredible because, and and this is what I don't think a lot of people realize. It's like bag in the box was ruined by Franzia, right? So bag in box wine, we we equate with cheap wine. We have this stupid game, slap the bag, where we take the bag out of the box and we hold it over our heads and we smack it as many times as we can to see if it'll burst and then we chug from it. It's a stupid college game. Look it up on YouTube. There's lots of videos. Um, But... The, the actual technology should be implemented in every single dive bar, music venue, et cetera, that wants to sell wine. Because what's amazing about bag-in-box technology is the wine inside the bag is good for three months after the bag is originally, quote-unquote, tapped. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing about the wine inside that bag is it is completely devoid of oxygen. So every time you're pouring someone a glass of wine from this bag and box, you are giving them a fresh glass of wine. It is if, – if we could all have really good box wine behind the bar instead of really crappy bottles of wine you know, that have been opened for four weeks and it's finally coming to you and you're like, I just want a glass of white wine in this dive bar and you're basically drinking vinegar – it would be a much better thing for all of us. But, we've cr- but Franzia helped create this stigma – that bag and box is crap. Yeah. So no one is taking that risk. And again, people are trying to reclaim it. But so that's my fear for canned wine too, because I would love to be able to go to a casual beachside, you know, venue and and get a good can of wine. But if people keep putting garbage in it, I'm not going to do that. And then most people are going to start thinking that it's just canned wine equals garbage. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate for for the 
bag and box and for and for keg wine too as an option for for places that might sell a little bit more wine but really want to preserve freshness because it's true that that there are a few things more disappointing than you know ordering a glass of wine somewhere and figuring out that after you've already ordered it and gotten it that it was the bottle was open god knows when and you know especially some places it's you're not going to be able to say hey you know can i get a new a new pour they're going to look at you like you're crazy um and so there's there is that real frustration and I think that real opportunity. And I really do think there's a lot of wine on the market today that would benefit from being <coughs> largely packaged that way and, and presented that way if you're right, there wasn't such the stigma. But I, I think our generation and, and even younger, you know, I, I just I'm amazed at how many people I know, have friends of mine and whatnot, who who really are, you know, interested in drinking wine on a regular basis, um, but are really happy to find, you know, whether it's a bag and box that fits in their fridge and, and can be their, you know, their box of rosé for the for a month over in the, you know, the height of summer, and they can just have a glass and it's cold and, you know, yeah, it doesn't go bad. And, you know, the, the, there's real opportunity there. I don't think there's opportunity for, for great wine. I think, you know, the great wines of the world are still, are probably always going to go in, in a bottle and, you know, mostly get sealed with a cork or maybe a screw cap, depending. Um, but for the right. most part... But for the most part, most wine that most people drink would be just as good, if not better, in a bag and box if if we just got over our sort of collective bad memories of a few right, if we shitty just said, examples. Screw you, Franzia. Screw you, Franzia. <laughs> right? Because like I think people, if you could, if you could really explain to people, look, we I understand that this bag and box is fifty bucks, but I want to explain to you that there's three bottles of wine in here. Four bottles. If of I wine. put four bottles, <laughs> they're usually right, three liters. That, yeah. Right, that I could that I could normally charge you twenty bucks a bottle for, so they would cost you eighty bucks. But I'm charging you fifty, so you're getting a thirty dollar discount for quality twenty dollar juice, right? And you've got it, as you said, all summer. Although, let's be honest, who's going to really only make that last for three months? <laughs> okay, fine, one week, in, whatever. But or, or even two weeks, whatever, so that you can come home and have a glass of wine at the end of the day, or a glass or two of wine at dinner. That is way more innovative and way more interesting than all these stupid, stupid, stupid pieces of technology that all these entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are coming up with to try to solve this problem of people only wanting to have one glass of wine at the end of the day, right? All these stupid things like the Kuvi, which went under, you know, they basically went bankrupt because they, they, they had this, this claim all, you know, it's, this is, it's, it's basically the Keurig for wine. No, we have the Keurig for wine. It's called boxed wine. We <laughs> yep. just need to get over the fact that Franzia ruined it for everyone and put better juice inside. And it's funny too because you know there's there's this crazy uh, disconnect too where people don't realize that you know one of with inexpensive wine one of the big costs is your bottle and the cork and the label like those yeah. things are huge you know huge parts of the cost of the bottle and if you're buying you know it's one thing if you're buying a three hundred dollar bottle of wine where that bottle and all that cost you know a few you know a, a percent or two of that and you don't really care but if you're buying a ten fifteen twenty dollar bottle of wine I mean a not a significant part of that purchase cost is the packaging and a bag and box is a hell of a lot cheaper, especially, you know, when you consider that you're getting essentially four bottles worth. And yeah, I mean, you know, we, uh, I've gone through periods of time where I have a, a box of rosé in the fridge and people have been like, wait, you have box wine? And I'm like, hell yeah. And I always have at least one in my, in my kitchen. I mean, it's great for cooking as well. Um, but you know, do I have a glass from it every now and then? Spoiler warning. You should. Yes, I do. You should. If, as long as it's good wine, you should. And I think that that's what's also – that is what is exciting about canned wine. My only issue with canned wine is I think that as a consumer culture for, for the wineries, they need to get away from the 12-ounce beer size and go to the you know the 5-ounce uh, like size that I think some, some producers are starting to move towards just because like I don't really want you know two glasses of wine – 
uh, when I, when I open the can, like at the end of a hike, but I'd like a glass. And I think, you know, the problem with the, the larger format cans and like a lot of people are in them just because I think it's easier Mm because what was explained to me actually is, so do you know why everyone went into 12 ounce cans? I assume just because there's a ton of that equipment and whatnot around and it's equipment much easier. And also, basically, once the TTB approves a certain size vessel for storage of a certain ABV of alcohol, mm-hmm. it's approved. Huh. So because they people were already putting high-gravity beers in cans, it was already oh. approved for 12 to 13 and a half ounce, you know, 13 and a half percent wines. So if you if you want the small cans, you got to be the person who's willing to be the first to go do all that legwork. So then all your competitors can follow you, uh-huh. right? So even though it would be great if we were going into these, you know, the, the tall, slender cans that would allow, you know, for six ounce pours or whatever, there was someone that finally had to take that risk and say they were going to pay all the legal fees and all that stuff to submit to the TTB to get it approved, so that then, you know, and the alcohol, tobacco, firearms uh, people to to get approved, so that then finally we. Um, we were able to to pour into those things, um, but I, look, I think canned wine is great. I think box wine is great. What I'm really excited about though with alternative packaging, besides those two, is I'm really excited about canned cocktails. Yeah, and the reason for that is because I think there's just a lot of people out there that still are intimidated about making, especially craft cocktails at home, and they're. There are some really good craft cocktails out there now in cans uh, or bottles, small bottles. But I think that that's, you know, the canned and bottled cocktail movement, I think is super exciting for our cocktail culture because it means that we can have these high quality cocktails at home that normally we're used to having out if we're not someone who considers ourselves, you know, an, an adept bartender. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's definitely one huge thing. I've even seen it, you know, it's interesting. I've seen um, the canned cocktails pop up on some sort of like uh, fast casual places here uh, in Seattle or or places that have counter service where, you know, it's like a way for them to have an expanded beverage selection without having to like have someone who knows how to make a drink. Um, and it's it's cool. I mean, I, I haven't tried a lot of them. I, I would be curious, you know, I, I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm maybe just a traditionalist in this regard in that I think it's cool and I think it's a nice option for people. I have haven't felt like super compelled to to give them much of a try, maybe because they don't get sent to me as samples. But um, I'm wondering if uh, if there's if there anything if there's anything out there that you've had, whether you want to name them or not, that you're like, you oh, know, this yeah, has dude. been really good. So, so I mean, Saint Agrestis, which is a producer uh, here in uh, New York, they were making like an Amaro hipsters, um, but then they started last year making a canned Negroni, or no, sorry, mm. a bottled Negroni, and it's really good. You know, it's their own bitter liqueur so it's not campari i think it's a gin that they partner with in their own vermouth i think um but it's really good and again for someone who's not used to or doesn't feel comfortable making a negroni because i have to say like while i think the negroni for me is an easy cocktail to make some people get intimidated by it because you do have it's 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 not just about the equal proportions of the liquid a third a third a third but it is also having really good really good gin you know having really good vermouth and then you know making sure you can get campari um so it's a great it's a great alternative uh, there's another one i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but we had in the office it was a really good old fashioned in mm-hmm. a really tall you know tiny little can and you leave it in the fridge and then you know you pop it and you add yourself an orange slice or whatever you know orange peel and pour it over ice and it was like a delicious old fashioned i had one night you know when i wanted a cocktail um so those types of things i think are cool 
you know, but I agree with you. Like I have a, I mean, I have a fully stocked bar, so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go when, when I'm, when, when needed. But for a lot of people, you, they just don't have that. I mean, that's why like, you know, we're in bubbles, right? Like you and I are in bubbles. We yeah. live in, in cities that, you know, are very different than I think the way that the majority of America works. And so we think that there are trends that don't really exist. So in the majority of America, the top selling spirit still to this day is vodka. And, you know, um, a brand uh, manager at one of the top uh, spirits companies was talking to me a few weeks ago. He was in the office and he was saying like, the reason vodka is still popular is because it's the easiest spirit to mix because all you have to do with vodka is put it in whatever you want to drink. And to most people, that's a cocktail because everything else is intimidating. So if I'm having, you know, Smoothie King and I want to add vodka to my Smoothie King, which I, I did in high school. Sorry, mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> They're just finding out now, be- I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. That becomes a boozy cocktail. Yep. Um, you know, but I may not want to mix myself, uh, you know, a dry gin martini. And so I think that's where some of these canned cocktails come in and are really exciting because we can spread really awesome cocktails across the country. For sure. And you're right, too, that there's that there's that that advantage, too, if I think for people. And and it comes back to something you were mentioning before with the with the canned cocktails, I think more so than anything else that we've talked about, where it, it both cuts out some of the need for expertise, but it also really cuts out the need for the fully stocked bar that you and I have. Totally. And, and you know, whether it's a space consideration, like I'm impressed that you have a fully stocked bar in New York City um, or a just a, hey, I don't want to buy. Be. You really should be. <laughs> I don't want or I just I don't want to buy, you know, that even. 15 or 20 bottles of booze it takes to have even the sort of beginnings of a functional bar at home, let alone the 50 or 60 to have, you know, kind of the full range of cocktail options. I get it that we, you know, I mean, I like to collect booze because I'm a lunatic, but I don't blame people who don't and, and who still want to have a nice cocktail at home. And and I think it's a really, um, it's a overdue in some ways, um, sort of vehicle for people to enjoy these things. And, and I really wonder, you know, this is my last thing. And I don't know, there's probably some legal complications with some of this stuff. I don't know. It's every state is different. And so don't, don't, you know, criticize me if I get your state wrong, but I bet you there are some places in the country where you could see maybe even bars or distilleries bottling or canning some of these cocktails for themselves. And I'm I'm I would imagine that we will start seeing more and more of that where where people are, you know, just in the same way that that you can get with, you know, a bottle of craft, you know, spirit X. Often you can get a suggested, you know, list of suggested recipes and things like that. I wouldn't be surprised if soon enough you can say, hey, you know, you could buy this bottle or do you want to buy a six pack of our canned Negroni or our bottled old fashioned or whatever. Like, I think that's a space that we will see more and more producers step into. Um, you know, just because to me, it's like it's such an obvious solution uh, or such an obvious uh, area of growth for them because not everyone is going to necessarily want to buy a bottle which they then have to mix with other things that they may not have at home. But if you can sell them a, a pre made cocktail, uh, packaged cocktail that features your spirit or whatever it is or spirits. Oh, or whatever. it's coming. I so. think it's definitely coming. And I think I think what we're going to see actually, this is my prediction. So I think, you know, the canned cocktail movement is going to grow. So you're going to see more more people, startup-y people coming out with their versions of Negronis, uh, Margaritas, Palomas, uh, Manhattans, Sazeracs, all that stuff in canned form, right? Mm-hmm. Then I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the big guys get in, yeah, uh, guys and gals. And uh, they are going to, you know, start putting their brand on it, right? So it's going to be Campari's Negroni, yeah, in in small bottle form, small small can form. 
And then I think what happens is this is where it gets really awesome is you're going to see Campari come out with a 750 bottle uh, Negroni. Yeah, I can see that this for, is sure. for This is for a party. And it's going to come with, around the neck of the bottle, a three-ounce jigger that's going to say, pour, you know, fill to this line, just like, you know, anything else we're used to measuring, and pour over ice. Yeah. And you're going to see it everywhere. Damn, dude, I really like, that's where it's going. I really, I really do feel like I'm looking into the future. This is, and it's a pretty tasty one. I feel like. I think so too. Well, so, yeah, I, man, we'll I, put those 750s of of packaged cocktails next to our boxes of wine, and we will have ourselves a party. And guess what, Campari? If you do this, it was my idea, and I want <laughs> to be paid a royalty. Yeah, podcasts are legally binding. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Don't exactly. I'm, not, I'm also just like I'm not a doctor. I'm also not a lawyer, but uh, I'm going to stand by that one. But look, man, I think you know. End of the day. Cocktail, you know, canned cocktails, canned wine, even large format uh, beer, although I wouldn't really call it that alternative packaging. I think different packages for for these three liquids is really exciting. Um, and I think that, you know, the biggest the biggest thing is we just we can't we can't screw them up. Right. So as long as as long as we keep putting good quality liquid inside this alternative, these alternative packages, I think they're really good for the industry and they're really good for us as drinkers. The second we start putting poor quality liquid inside the packages is going to be the second that the packaging is a bad idea. And we're all going to run back to our bottles of wine and our, you know, cocktails at at craft cocktail bars only. Yeah. Although I will say this, you know, we don't hold it against bottles of wine that the really, really cheap wine is also put in bottles. And I, I encourage listeners, if you have a bad experience with canned wine or a canned cocktail or box wine, do not hold that against the vessel. Hold that against the producer. And maybe tell us about it so we can give them some shit on the, on the podcast. That's true, Zach. God, so wise. So <laughs> every wise. once in a while, man. Every once in a while. I'm just in a good mood because it's so nice. <laughs> the weather's so nice here. So I feel, I feel sort of uh, at in. one with the universe. I really, I, I, I really I, am. No, I knew what you decided to do today. You decided regardless of weather. It's probably really crappy in Seattle today. <laughs> you just want me to think it's nice because all we did was, was shit talk <laughs> Seattle on the last podcast. I even got Eric Asimov to shit talk uh, Seattle. So, it's true, uh, although, he, although he did say nice things about my employer, which is good because uh, I think they listen. And uh, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hopefully that minute you got a raise. <laughs> um, we'll but, see. But I, I'm, I'm super excited about talking about pay to play next week. Um, and until then, thanks so much for, for a great conversation. And thank everyone for listening. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.